Good morning, everyone. So the reading, as you can see on the screen, Numbers chapter 1, the first 19 verses, and then we'll jump along to chapter 2. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Elizur, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zur-Shaddai. From Judah, Nashon, son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nethanel, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishamah, son of Amihud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedazur. From Benjamin, Abadan, son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahiza, son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Jewel. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, so skipping along to chapter 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Aminadab. His division numbers 74,600. The tribe of Issachar will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Issachar is Nethanel, son of Zuar. His division numbers 54,400. The tribe of Zebulun will be next. The leader of the people of Zebulun is Eliab, son of Helon. His division numbers 57,400. All the men assigned to the camp of Judah, according to their divisions, number 186,400. They will set out first. On the south will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. The leader of the people of Reuben is Elizor, son of Shadur. His division numbers 46,500. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Simeon is Shalumiel, son of Zurashaddai. His division numbers 59,300. The tribe of Gad will be next. The leader of the people of Gad is Eliasaph, son of Jewel. His division numbers 45,650. 
All the men assigned to the camp of Reuben, according to their divisions, number 151,450, they will set out second. Then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in their own place under their standard. On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. The leader of the people of Ephraim is Elishamah, son of Amihud. His division numbers 40,500. The tribe of Manasseh will be next to them. The leader of the people of Manasseh is Gamaliel, son of Pedazor. His division numbers 32,200. The tribe of Benjamin will be next. The leader of the people of Benjamin is Abadan, son of Gideonai. His division numbers 35,400. All the men assigned to the camp of Ephraim, according to their divisions, number 108,100. They will set out third. On the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan under their standard. The leader of the people of Dan is Ahiza, son of Amishadai. His division numbers 62,700. The tribe of Asher will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Asher is Pagiel, son of Okran. His division numbers 41,500. The tribe of Naphtali will be next. The leader of the people of Naphtali is Ahira, son of Enan. His division numbers 53,400. All the men assigned to the camp of Dan number 157,600. They will set out last under their standards. These are the Israelites, counted according to their families. All the men in the camps, by their divisions, number 603,550. The Levites, however, were not counted along with the other Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out each of them with their clan and family. Thanks for reading, Henry. Well done. Deserves a round of applause, really, doesn't he? Morning. Great to be back with you. Uh, for those that don't know, I got back from the UK yesterday afternoon with Darcy and Katie. Uh, I left them sleeping this morning, but um, I'm feeling not too bad. Um, thanks for your prayers throughout our time. It was quite an adventure, um, long journeys, um, some challenges along the way, but um, great to meet new family members and uh, reconnect with old friends. And um, as we begin this new series in the book of Numbers, we are entering into the story of another journey, uh, the journey of God's people from Mount Sinai through the wilderness to the promised land. And we're going to be learning about what it means to walk with God, uh, what it looks like to journey through all the ups and downs of this life in relationship with the God of the Bible. So let me pray uh, for us. And we'll have some intro to numbers and then uh, make a start. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word 
in the Bible. We thank you that everything is recorded for our instruction and learning, that what we read about uh, in the book of Numbers, these distant events about people uh, we feel very unconnected to, these things are written down as examples for us uh, to learn from to be uh, transformed by. So we pray for the help of your spirit this morning uh, to take to heart the lessons that you want us to hear. And we pray that you would be uh, working to encourage us this morning as we think about your, uh, your wonderful, majestic character. Amen. So uh, Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible, fourth book of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is just a fancy word for the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Over the last five years or so, we've um, kind of made our way through Genesis, or some of it, Exodus. Last year, we had a whistle-stop tour through Leviticus. This term, uh, we're going to take a survey of the book of Numbers and maybe next year or the year after, we'll get on to Deuteronomy. So it's been a bit of a, a kind of medium-term project uh, for us as a church. Uh, Numbers itself is a pretty neglected book. I mean, I've never heard it mentioned as anyone's favorite or kind of top five uh, books in the Bible. Has anyone ever heard a sermon on Numbers before? Some? Not many? Um, a whole sermon series on Numbers? Yes? Kate, at least. Good. Um, maybe it's the name, Numbers. It's not a very inspiring title, is it? And, and the name comes from the fact that the book contains a number of long lists of, of names, which I think Henry read with, with um, some enthusiasm, which was great. Uh, but it doesn't really inspire it's a pretty long book, and there's not a great deal of action, but there are some really famous stories. Uh, you've probably heard of the story of when God's people refuse to enter the land and, and so are consigned to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Well, that's book of Numbers. Uh, Moses bringing water from the rock. Uh, there's the story of the people being um, saved from poisonous snakes by looking to the bronze snake lifted up on the pole. That's a um, story that actually lies behind the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Come to that in a few weeks' time. And there's the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Famous stories, some of them are a bit strange, but they're here in the book of Numbers. And, and as I've prepared for this series, I've been struck by just how much the New Testament looks back to the stories contained in Numbers. Time and again, the New Testament writers look back to the story of God's people in Numbers as examples to us. Because first and foremost, the book of Numbers is the story of a journey. It's a travel log. It's the journey through the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the promised land of Canaan. You see, God's people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. That's the beginning of Exodus. God brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he forms them as his people. He gives them the Ten Commandments and other laws. God forms them as his people, a saved people, saved from slavery, saved for obedience in the Promised Land. And God also gives them detailed instructions about building a tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God would live with his people. 
And at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is completed. The book of Leviticus, as we saw last year, is all about God's holiness, about what it looks like to live in relationship with a holy God. So Leviticus is full of rituals and rules to shape the life of God's people. But throughout Leviticus, the people are static. There's no action. They're they're receiving these instructions at the foot of Mount Sinai. And in fact, they spend just over a year camped at the foot of the mountain. And that's where we pick up the action in the book of Numbers. They've been saved from slavery. They've been formed as God's people. Now it's time to make the journey to the promised land. And then we have 10 chapters in which they don't move at all. The first 10 chapters of Numbers are preparations for the journey. And that's what we're going to cover this week and next, the first 10 chapters. Uh, Just 10 long chapters of travel preparations. Sounds thrilling, doesn't it? Uh, Maybe not. Uh, But let me frame it like this. The The Christian life is a journey. We've been saved through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We've been formed as God's people in relationship with God. And we're now journeying through life toward the promised land of the new creation. What does that journey look like? How can we make sure that we travel well and reach our final destination? That's what the book of Numbers is going to help us with. Because we're told in the New Testament that... These things happened as examples. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So in these first two talks, we learn about what it means to walk with God, what it means to journey through the ups and downs of life in relationship with the God of the Bible. There's a lot in these chapters, but this morning just two fairly simple ideas, two big truths about God that we need to hold on to if we're going to travel through life well and make it to the end. Firstly, the truth that God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. So look again at chapter 1 and verse 2. Or even verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. And so they do. Uh, They take a, a census, they count uh, everyone, or at least they count all the, the men of fighting age. And there's a huge number, as we saw at the end of chapter 2. The total number of men able to serve in the army is 603,550. Now, to understand the significance of this, you need to know a bit about a guy called Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. God had called him, and God had made three big promises to Abraham. Can anyone tell me, what, are the, what were the three big promises about that God made to Abraham? Land? Offspring? Blessing. Yeah. Always my little song for my girls growing up. Children, land, and blessing. 
Uh, God had promised numerous descendants, offspring as many as the stars in the sky. Abraham's family, God said, would become a great nation. Uh, land, God had promised to give to Abraham and his family the land of Canaan and blessing. God had promised that they would be blessed and that they would be a blessing. They'd bring blessing to the whole world. Now, at the beginning of Exodus, we're told that Abraham's family numbered 70 people when they came to live in Egypt. And now, four centuries later, they are a huge nation. Despite their time in slavery, they've grown into this uh, huge number of people. 600,000 fighting men, add in women and children. We're talking about two million. The big point of this census is that God has been faithful to his promises. God has been faithful to his promises. As every name rung out, it was a reminder, an assurance of God's faithfulness. Now, I need to say up front that there are problems with the numbers. In chapter 3, they count the number of firstborn males, and the total is 22,000. So if there are 600,000 roughly men, you know, probably more, uh, and there are 22,000 firstborn men, do some maths, it means every family contains about 27 males. And if there are the same number of girls, every Israelite woman was having over 50 kids. Add to that the fact that when you get to later books like Joshua and Judges, one of the key challenges we're told for the Israelites entering the land was a lack of numbers. So it's not that God couldn't have brought two million people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, uh, but there are problems within the text itself. Now, I'm not going to go into all the various solutions that have been proposed. I can point you in the direction of some further reading if you'd like. One possible solution is around the fact that the, the Hebrew word for thousand can also mean clan. And so it may be that the tribe of Reuben, for example, first one in chapter one, rather than there being 46,500 men, there were 46 clans with 500 men. Or some people, I'm not quite sure how they work this out, 45 clans with 1,500 men. Anyway, we mustn't get tripped up by the numbers. The point of the narrative is clear. Whether it's 2 million people or 140,000 people, the numbers speak of God's faithfulness. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. Now for the Israelites, this should have been a source of great confidence for them. As they looked ahead to the promised land, the journey that they were to take, and the battles that they were to fight, this was a military census after all, that they were going to have to fight to enter the land. As they looked ahead to all of that, they could take great confidence in the faithfulness of God. He'd kept his promise to Abraham of numerous descendants, he would keep his promise to give them the land. And so for us, as we journey through life toward the new creation, knowing that there will be struggles along the way, 
we can stand secure in the faithfulness of our gods. Even more than the Israelites, we can look back and see that God has been faithful. Supremely in the Lord Jesus, he has fulfilled every promise. I remember reading um, some years ago a book about the cross called The Pierced for Our Transgressions. Now, I can't find my copy. If anyone's got it, I would like it back at some point. But in that book, it makes the point that the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that. Yes, it's the ultimate demonstration of God's love and justice, but also his faithfulness. See, God had promised that he would provide a way to save sinners without compromising his holiness. And God was so committed to keeping that promise that he was willing to endure even the agony of the cross. Such is God's faithfulness. God has been faithful in the past at every point, and we can trust he'll be faithful to the end. And so we can build our lives here and now. We can build our lives today on the promises of God. Here are a few on the screen. His promise of forgiveness and abundant life in Jesus. His promise to hear and answer our prayers. His promise to build his church. His promise of unfailing love and care. His promise to work in every circumstance of our lives for our good. His promise to keep us and protect us and bring us safely to glory. As the song says, I have found my foundation. He stands by every promise he's made. Faithful God, never changing. I will stand on the promise of your word. On the plane coming home, I watched the movie Dear Evan Hansen, or kind of half watched it as I was looking after um, Katie. If you've not seen it, the movie uh, is about a socially anxious teenager called Evan Hansen, who is um, advised by his therapist to write Uh, letters to himself as a kind of pep talk. So every day he's to write, Dear Evan Hansen, today is going to be a good day and here's why. Now Evan Hansen gets into all kinds of problems and then there's some resolution. And at the end of the movie, his final letter, uh, he says this, Dear Evan Hansen, today is going to be a good day and here's why. Because today, no matter what else, today at least you're you. No hiding, no lying, just you. And that's enough. Now there's something good about that. He learns he doesn't need to hide. He learns that uh, he doesn't need to project a false image of himself. But it struck me, there's so much more that could be said to encourage us each and every day. Dear Ben Wood, today is going to be a good day and here's why. Because your God is faithful to his promises. And today, no matter what you face, whatever trials and temptations, whatever hardships, whatever failures, nothing can separate you from his love. And he's working in every circumstance of today for your good and his glory. And he's bringing you one day closer to your true and final home. Wouldn't it be great to start each day remembering the promises of our God, planting our feet in his word, setting our hearts at rest in his faithfulness?
think what peace could be ours. If we're going to travel life's journey well, we need to know that God is faithful to his promises. And secondly, we need to know that God is with us, that God is present with his people. If we're thinking about God's promises, then one of the most precious is the promise of his presence. Because this faithful God is the God who promises to dwell with us. This can be seen from the layout of the camp described in chapters 2 and 3. Here are a couple of um, diagrams on the screen on your left. Um, You can see in the center of the camp, the red is the tabernacle, and then the dark blue are the the Levite clans uh, surrounding the tabernacle. And then on each side, east and south and west and north, you've got three of the uh, the tribes of Israel. Uh, The tribes were arranged on each side, uh, but the important thing, and then on the the right of the screen, you can see a kind of more... um, picture version of how that might look with all these Israelites camped out. But the important thing is that right at the center of the camp was the tabernacle, the visible presence of God among his people. The life of the community of Israel was centered on God. God was at the center. That The thing that defined these people was the fact that their God, Yahweh, dwelt among them near them, with them. Now next week we'll think more about God's holiness and the difficulty of a holy God living among a sinful people. But the truth to rejoice in today is that our God is determined to dwell with us. The picture at the beginning of the Bible is a picture of God uh, walking in the garden in close relationship with uh, humanity. Then we learn that relationship is severed through human sin and rebellion. And the story of the Bible is really the story of God's pursuit of his people. His determination to restore what was lost and to live once again in close relationship. The tabernacle and later the temple was a huge deal because it fulfilled the promise of God to live once again among his people. But the tabernacle and the the temple Uh, also made it clear that there was still a barrier to that close relationship. There was a a curtain in the tabernacle, in the temple, that acted as a huge no-entry sign. But in Jesus, that barrier is removed. John's Gospel tells us that the Word became flesh and literally tabernacled amongst us, dwelt amongst us. Jesus is described as us. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the fact that access into the presence of God is now open once again for people like us. At the end of the Great Commission, Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Jesus isn't with us physically, bodily, as he was during his time on earth. But he promised when he ascended to heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit to live with us and in us. Through the Spirit, we have the most intimate relationship with God. It's kind of basic, but I wonder if you ever stop and think, everywhere I go, I walk around with 
God living in me. We don't have a temple near us, camped alongside our home. We are temples of God the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. And God has promised, never will I leave you. Never, ever, ever will I abandon you. Again, for the Israelites, facing their journey through the wilderness into an unknown land, facing the prospect of battle with unknown enemies, it should have been a great comfort and assurance to know God is with us. As God says to Joshua on the point of entering the land, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. And so for us, as we face our journey through life, there are many uncertainties, and that can be scary. But there's one thing that is absolutely certain. The Lord our God is with us, and will be with us whatever we face. I love these words from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Next week, we're going to continue thinking about what it means to walk with God. We're going to think about the fact that God is Lord and God is holy and God is determined to bless. But today, these two big truths, two big truths to hold on to, that God is faithful and that God is with us. I don't know where you're at in your journey and what challenges you face, but I know that these truths will make a massive difference. So here are some questions to uh, reflect on, uh, maybe after the service or in your DNA groups. Where are you at in your journey? What are the challenges uh, you're facing or fearing? What difference would it make to really know, to really believe that God is faithful to his promises, that God is present with his people? And what can you do? How can you actively remember those truths. Why don't I pray? Our Father, we thank you for these two simple yet life-changing truths about your faithfulness and about your presence with us truths that are uh, made even more certain in the Lord Jesus as you showed your faithfulness uh, supremely uh, in the salvation that you've accomplished through your son and as through his incarnation and through his sending of the spirits uh, we know your presence with us and in, in a closer and even more tangible way we pray today and this week that by your spirit you'd make these truths real to us. And we pray that uh, as we take hold of these truths, uh, you would encourage us and strengthen us to face uh, whatever uncertainties, whatever hardships, whatever trials uh, are in our experience right now.
uh, whatever we're facing in our journey and that you would uh, help us to uh, be useful to each other in this to remind each other of these things uh, that we might be people who walk uh, through life towards our promised land uh, knowing your faithfulness knowing your presence knowing that you will bring us safely to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.